You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Liberty Family Church. For more information about our church, head to the website, libertyfamilychurch.net.au. When faced with making decisions, particularly really important decisions, it's always wise to do your homework, to do your research. Get the information you need to make the best decision. And this often involves getting other people's inputs, although that can often carry widely differing opinions. But that's a good thing to do. But what do you do? What do you do with all that potentially contradictory information? Who do you go to for answers? For many in our post-Christian, post-modern culture, that's often some celebrity who made their name as an actor or a sports star and I must admit for some reason that is a complete mystery to me. Our culture affords their opinions great weight. I don't know why. For many it is the scientists or the experts in that particular field whose opinion holds sway and for me they certainly carry much more weight than some celebrity. Many make their decisions based on popular opinion. Because after all, they can't all be wrong, can they? But what about you? What is your final authority? For me, it's Jesus. Jesus is my final authority. Jesus, who is also called the Word in John's Gospel and therefore is inseparable from the Bible, for me has the final say on all matters. As I'm sure many of you are aware, I've spoken previously about the creation-evolution debate. On the one hand, there are those who believe everything came by nothing all by itself and then evolved into the universe as we know it today over the course of some 14 billion years. On the other side of the debate, there are those who believe the universe came into existence by the word of God some 6,000 years ago, as described in the Bible. Now, clearly these are two opposing views. They're somewhat opposing views. And yes, the weight of numbers is clearly on the side of the evolution camp in our culture today. However, does that make it true? I actually don't think so. I have spoken previously about the reasons why I believe biblical creation to be true, usually from a more scientific perspective. Today, however, I want to revert to my final authority to see what Jesus has to say about it all. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I I thank you for this time. I thank you for this opportunity to share your word that I certainly believe you have placed on my heart and it's been bubbling away in there for some time now. Lord, today I pray for open ears, ears to hear and eyes to know, to see, to understand, minds to grasp what you are saying to your church here today on this matter. 
So Lord, I pray for the fruit to come from this word that you have purposed for it. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's set a foundation. Let's set a foundation. Um, in the Bible, on, uh, in John's Gospel, John chapter 10, verse 35, Jesus actually makes this incredible statement. He says, Scripture cannot be broken. It's in the context of a whole lot of other stuff that he was talking about, but he says very clearly, Scripture cannot be broken. Therefore, Genesis, or any other book of the Bible, cannot be broken. Jesus is saying that Scripture is both authoritative and reliable. Secondly, Jesus said, It is written, or have you not heard many times, referencing uh, articles, scriptures, passages in the Old Testament. And yes, it was more than the three times while he was being tempted by Satan in the desert. And here's an interesting uh, topic if you want to dig a little bit deeper. Examine all the occurrences where Jesus quotes or clearly refers to an Old Testament scripture. I challenge you. Have a crack at it. Clearly he thought the Old Testament was important and relevant. Clearly. All right. Let's get into what Jesus actually said about Genesis. We go to the first one, which is Mark chapter 10, verse 6. Mark 10, verse 6. But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. If there's nothing else you remember from this message today, remember that verse. Remember that verse. It is what I call a slam dunk verse. It is the smoking gun in this whole discussion. At the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And he's clearly referring back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, when God created man and woman. To help illustrate why I believe this verse is so important, I would ask you to imagine a timeline, a timeline. First of all, the evolutionary timeline. Evolutionists would suggest that the Big Bang occurred 14 billion years ago. With a timeline, if you could imagine one metre representing one billion years. If present time is represented right here at the edge of the stage. According to that scale, the timeline would stretch back to, and I actually measured it earlier today, stretch back to approximately the sound desk. That would represent 14 billion years with one metre representing one billion years. 
Evolutionists would also suggest that first life spontaneously arose some four billion years ago. Now, four billion years takes us to about the second row of chairs here. Okay, so there's 10 billion years, then life, up to the present day. Evolutionists also suggest that Homo sapien, man, first appeared approximately one million years ago. Now, a million years is a long time. One million years ago. Yet on that scale, can anyone tell me what one million years would be represented by? Any ideas? One millimetre. A billion is a thousand million. When I was growing up in school, and we, it was probably more based on the British system, where they believed a billion was a million million, but in more modern times it's now become standardised that a billion is a thousand million. So therefore, one one-thousandth of a metre is one millimetre. Therefore, Homo sapien, man, according to an evolutionist, only appeared in that last millimetre. Now, compare that to the biblical timeline. The biblical timeline stretches back approximately 6,000 years. If we were to apply a different scale of one metre representing 1,000 years. 6,000 years from here would then stretch six metres, which takes us to approximately just in front of where that screen is, the TV. That would be six metres. According to the Bible, man was created on day six. If you consider that six metre Length, one year is represented by one millimetre. One year out of a thousand years, a thousand years represented by a metre. In that first year, man was created in the first week. If you consider it was day six of creation, to ease up the mathematics, let's say... There were 366 days. There weren't, we know, but let's round it. Therefore, it's one day six out of 366 is 161st of that first millimetre. Now, which one represents at the beginning of creation God created them male and female? Clearly, the biblical one. In the evolutionary story, it's right at the very, very end, whereas in the biblical story, it's right at the very, very, very beginning. That's why this verse, what Jesus had to say here, utterly, completely blasts out of the water the theory of evolution and indeed theistic evolution. Theistic evolution is where... I'm trying to keep a foot in both camps. 
where you, you believe in evolution but you believe that God is driving or orchestrating evolution. But it can't possibly be. If Jesus said, at the beginning of creation, not 14 billion years later, at the beginning of creation God made them male and female. Now, I could leave it there, because to me, that actually just knocks the case right out of the water. But anyway, I'll give you your money's worth. We'll move on. Let's have a look at the next one. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, starting at verse 4. Haven't you read? And this is Jesus, and there's one of those, haven't you reads. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore what God has joined together... Let man not separate. Now, clearly, this is Jesus defining marriage. He's also referring back to, yes, Genesis 1.27 and also Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 to 24. Can you guys read that okay? Right. So, Jesus referring to Genesis both 1 and 2 in that simple little passage. Let's move on. Luke chapter 11, verses 50 to 51. Jesus speaking. Therefore this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. So this is Jesus referring back to two events as recorded in the Bible. The first one is the murder of Abel, which is recorded in Genesis chapter 4, verse 8. The murder of Zechariah is actually recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 20 to 21. Jesus is referring to these as historical events. He is referring to Abel as and historical figure. Now, Abel being the son of Adam and Eve, therefore Adam and Eve are historical figures. They're not myth, they're not legend, they're not an allegory of prehistoric man. They are historical figures. Okay. Next one. Luke chapter 17, verse 26. Jesus speaking, just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Clearly Jesus referring back to Noah's flood, which is recorded in Genesis chapter 7. Jesus is recording it as, or certainly referring to it, as an historical event. It occurred. 
It's also clearly a global flood. It says it destroyed them all. Jesus said it destroyed them all. Therefore, it must have been a global flood. Otherwise, it would have destroyed some. Next one. John chapter 8. John 8, 56. John 8, verse 56. Jesus speaking, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus referring to that person, historical figure, Abraham, whose life is recorded in Genesis chapters 12 through 25. Jesus didn't think anything other than Abraham as an historical figure. Okay, nearly there. Matthew chapter 10. Verse 15. Jesus speaking, I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Once again, Jesus referring to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as an historical event. Not some myth, not some legend, but as an historical event the destruction of which is recorded in Genesis chapter 19, verses 23 to 29. Okay. One now to just round it all off. Matthew chapter 22, verse 40. Jesus speaking after describing the the twin commandments of love. Love God, love others. He says this. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In that one statement alone, Jesus is describing the whole of the Old Testament, all of the Old Testament, as being reliable, as being foundational, as being relevant, including Genesis. Now, I'm very aware that there are many within the church who question the relevance of Genesis to Christian faith and perhaps Christian living. You may have heard the term red-letter Christians, those who base, base their faith purely on the words of Jesus. Well, my response to both those objections is by simply pointing out the extent to which Jesus affirmed the historical account of Genesis And from my perspective, if Jesus believed it, I believe it. I can easily imagine uh, an objection to this view. Someone might suggest, well, after all, hasn't science proved evolution to be true? After all, Darwin only described his theory 150 years ago, so 
Jesus could not possibly have known how historically inaccurate Genesis is. Well, can I just take a breath here and not respond to that nonsense in the manner I might have a couple of years ago? Rather, may I point out who it is you're suggesting was ignorant of history? Let's go to Colossians chapter 1. And this is the Apostle Paul writing about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. Now, Paul is describing Jesus as the creator of everything. Therefore, if Jesus is affirming the Genesis account, and he's the creator of everything that is recording that creation, isn't that the end of the story? Isn't that it? If Jesus says it, then it is. Now, I'll leave that one there. If you don't like it, take it up with God. Take it up with God. He wrote the Bible. My job as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus, is to read it, believe it, and live it. Now, in terms of, its, of the relevance of Genesis to 21st century Hillsville, there's no doubt many topical issues of today are actually addressed in these early chapters of the Bible. And I'll just run through a couple of them very quickly. Firstly, marriage. We touched very briefly on this just before. We saw the vote in Australia just a couple of years ago regarding the institution of marriage in this country. And it was a sad but very predictable outcome affirming our post-Christian culture. But unless you are aware of what the Bible says about this issue, for example, what Jesus said in Matthew 19, 4-6, referring to Genesis 2, 18-24, as we looked at earlier, then it is all too easy to just go along with popular opinion. All too easy. And sadly, I believe, many did. Now, what about gender identity? There's a topic. Gender identity. We see gender confusion growing in our society and I predict it will only get worse. Genesis 1.27 says that God created male and female, full stop. There are, sadly, very, very, very rare examples of our fallen world and the genetic load, or if you like, the genetic entropy that exists where individuals are born with characteristics of both male and female. However, I believe the distinction that is attempting to be drawn between a person's sex and their chosen gender is indicative of the confusion that is being deliberately promulgated in our culture. 
But just to be very clear here, please let me be very clear. Our job as Christians is to love. It is to love. Jesus told us in no uncertain terms to love God and to love others with no qualification on who he meant by others. And that means we are called to love every person, every person, and allow the love of God to bring truth, healing and redemption where needed. And which, by the way, if you actually stop and think about it, includes all of us. What about sanctity of life? Sanctity of life. Well, for those of you who have heard me talk previously, you know I could really head off track here. But let me give you one statistic that will probably leave you breathless. I got this information from a website called worldometers.info. More people died from abortion in 2020 than from any other cause. In excess of 42.6 million abortions occurred in 2020 alone. By contrast, some 13 million died from various diseases, 8.7 million from cancer, 1.7 million from HIV AIDS and a similar number, 1.8 million from COVID-19. 42.6 million abortions. This is evil. This is evil. And is reminiscent of the ancient practice of sacrifice of children to the Canaanite god Molech. Genesis 1.27 says mankind is made in the image of God. Therefore, every life, every life is worthy of respect from conception to the grave. Now, having said that, let me say this, if I can borrow from Bob Hawke. You may recall, loved saying that because it gave him time to have a think about what he was going to say next. I realise that this may raise some painful issues with some people. I'm fully aware of that. Please understand, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are forgiven. As Peter was saying earlier, if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you are forgiven. All you have to do is receive his forgiveness. God is righteous and just, but he is also love. Never, ever, never lose sight of that truth. Right, sovereignty of God. Sovereignty of God in this culture where it's very much me and my rights and all those sorts of things, I think this is a very topical issue. But God makes the rules, not us. He defines the consequences of breaking his rules, not us. And if you doubt this to be so, just read Genesis chapter 3, the account of Adam and Eve's disobedience. That sovereignty hasn't changed. 
God is still in charge. We may not like the rules, we may not understand them, we may not like the consequences. But to be perfectly frank, that's not the point. (laughs) That's not the point. We don't make the rules, God does. We don't define or enforce the consequences of obedience or disobedience to those rules. God does. And there's one very good reason for that. That's because he's God. And we're not. We're not. Okay. Judgment. Judgment. Next topic. We read earlier in Luke 17 when Jesus referred to Noah's flood and we also read in Matthew 10 when Jesus referred to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God can and has judged the world. Jesus also spoke at length about end times. If you like, you can read Matthew chapter 24, which is a detailed description by Jesus on what the world can expect to occur. Using Noah's flood as a clear example that what God says he will do, he does. He does. There are more. There is the source of sin and need for redemption and all of that. But I think you get the picture. Unless your worldview is based on the Bible, you will be subject to the shifting sands of popular opinion. Clearly, Jesus believed Genesis was an accurate description of history. How can anyone anyone who is serious about their faith in Jesus, believe anything other than what he believes. Otherwise, to be perfectly blunt, to describe yourself as a follower of Jesus and yet to believe anything other than what the Bible clearly teaches is to depict Jesus as either a liar or as being ignorant of the truth. And they're two options that, quite frankly, are simply rubbish. Remember John 10.35, scripture cannot be broken. Therefore, this principle applies not only to the Gospels, not only to the New Testament, not only to Genesis, but to all 66 books of the Bible. I believe it is time we, the church, got fair income about the Bible, got fair income about it, about the word of God, if for no other reason than trying to make sense of this crazy world, we all need to read and to study and to meditate on the word of God. And I do mean the whole council of scripture, the whole council of scripture. We all have our favourite books and passages. We also have those books that we might struggle with. And yes, I put up my hand here. I fully acknowledge Reading Leviticus is hard work. That's exactly what I'm talking about. (laughs) It's hard work. But it's in the Bible. Therefore, 
It's there for a reason. Our job, my job, is to read it and every other book of the Bible and seek understanding as I do so. Can I leave you with a final thought? Indeed, some homework. I know you love it when I give you some homework. The Word of God. The Word of God. What does that mean? What does that mean to you? The Word of God. What do I do with that? How do I make sense of that? That's your homework for this week. Ponder it. Consider it. Chew it over. The word of God. What does it mean? What does it mean to you? I said at the start that Jesus is the word and is therefore inseparable from the Bible. Jesus clearly believed Genesis to be historically accurate. And to put it very plainly, if you don't believe what Jesus says about Genesis, then why would you believe anything he says? Why would you believe in the the virgin birth, the miracles, or even the resurrection of Jesus? I encourage you to view the world through a biblical worldview, despite what popular opinion would suggest. As always, and I think I say this in just about every message that I give, I encourage you to be a Berean. Check it out. Have a look up these scriptures for yourself. Look at them in context. What are they saying to you? Do not take my word or the word of any other preacher. And with the greatest respect to Joel, he would back me up 100% on this. Check it out for yourself. You need to check it out for yourself. So, is Jesus your final authority? If not, if not, I encourage you to truly examine why not. Why not? But then come to Jesus humbly when you inevitably realise he is, in fact, the final authority. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Your word that you have given to mankind. Your word that you have given to us so that we can learn, we can grow, we can come to know you more and more. Lord, we thank you and I pray, Lord, that the seeds that have been sown today take root, that they are, have been planted in fertile ground, and that, Lord, the fruit that comes from devotion to you and devotion to your word just bears fruit for generations to come. Lord, we thank you and we honour you in Jesus' name. Amen.